if you would, and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Last Sunday morning, I announced that I would be speaking this morning. Pastor Job would be at a conference. He would be home in time for Sunday, but I thought, you know, talk to Job and I would fill in this morning. And on Monday, Kurt texted me. So what passage out of Mark are you going to be speaking from? <laughs> the last two times I spoke, I spoke out of Mark. So he just thought, okay, I know where he's going with this one. And I did. I, had, I said, yes, I am. I'm Matthew chapter 5, or Mark chapter 5. The last two times I, I spoke, I spoke from Mark. You may recall one time was the um, story Blind Bartimaeus. And then another time was the, the four men who lowered the, the lame man through the roof. We looked at that one. This morning we're going to... Mark chapter 5, to the madman of the tombs. And hopefully this will be a blessing to all of us. Before we get into the passage, I want to remind you of something that I said on both of those Sundays, that when we come to the Gospels and we look into these, you can call them narratives or stories, some people don't like the word story because it kind of conjures up a made-up fictional thing. We know that the stories in the Bible are God's stories, and therefore they're true stories. But when we look at these stories or these narratives concerning Jesus, we want to see Jesus. It's not really about the madman of the tombs any more than it was about blind Bartimaeus or the man who came through the roof. It's always about Jesus. And the point that we see made in this passage is that Jesus, as we have you know, been saying this morning already, that Jesus is both powerful and merciful. That he is a merciful Savior. And we can even point to a passage of Scripture, a verse, where Jesus says this. You get through the miracle, you get through the whole scene, and the man wants to stay with Jesus, and Jesus tells him, no, you have to go home. And what does Jesus tell him to say when he goes out? In verse 19, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. That's what you go and tell them. There's a powerful and merciful Savior. This is your testimony. And so we'll be looking for that as we go through the passage this morning. Let me begin by reading the text, and we'll read 1 through 20. So there are 20 verses here. Mark 5, 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, Jesus, was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and 
And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered into the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Amen. This is one of those great stories in the New Testament, isn't it? And I often, you know, being raised in church and in children's church, uh, my mother was a teacher. She was both a Sunday school teacher, but helped run the children's ministry. But she also did flannel graph stories at home. And so I have these vivid memories, you know, of flannel graph figures. And I can see this man of the tombs, you know, running down to the shore to see Jesus. And we all have those, you know, pictures in our mind of these great stories. I want to begin with the setting. Well, let's back. Let's let's call it the context. I think that's a better word. Let's think about the context because here the context is important. In other words, where does this story fall among the other stories about Jesus? And the story immediately before this, if you go back into chapter 4, beginning in verse 35, we have the story of Jesus asleep on the boat, right? They go out on the boat, and a storm kicks up. Not just any storm, but a violent storm. So, it's so treacherous and so powerful that the boat is filling with water. Kind of reminds you of Acts and all those other stories, right? The boat is filling with water. Where's Jesus? He's down in the bottom of the boat sleeping. And the men are afraid for their lives. And so they go wake up Jesus. You know, what are you thinking? And Jesus says, basically, what's wrong with you? I'm here. What's wrong with your faith? And so then what does Jesus do? He demonstrates his authority over nature. He calms the sea. Just peace, be still, be calm. And immediately, these violent waves and this howling wind just stop. And a sea of glass comes over the, the Sea of Galilee. Jesus there demonstrates his authority over nature. And remember, they're marvel, they marvel at this. This is even make, makes them afraid. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And the story that follows, or the couple of stories that follow, Jesus heals a woman and raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. He is Lord over sickness and can heal people, and Lord over life itself can raise the dead. And in between these two, we have the story of this man who's full of demons, and Jesus is demonstrating he has authority even over demons. Authority over nature, authority over demons, authority over the sick, authority over the dead. This is the context of this story. It's all about Jesus and his authority. But not just his authority. Here and in what follows, we see he's a compassionate and merciful Savior. And so this overall context points us in that direction, doesn't it? Now, what about the setting? 
Verse 1 says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And so they had been on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus intentionally, you know, he gets into a boat and he directs them to go to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. What's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee? Well, we're told in verse 20 that this man was from the region called Decapolis. Now, you, you probably know that Decapolis means ten cities. There are 10 cities over there. Not just 10 cities, but these are mostly Gentile cities. The western side is mostly a, a Jewish area. The eastern side is mostly a Gentile area. And not only a Gentile area, but one commentator says that these cities, the, the, the 10 cities, were like showcases of paganism, showcases of godlessness, of cities that can live and, and get along and survive without God. That's this region of Decapolis. And this man is sent to Decapolis, perhaps the first person who ever goes and gives the gospel in Decapolis. Pagan pagan region. And so Jesus has intentionally moved from the western side, mostly Jewish, now to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, to mostly Gentile territory and pagan territory. And uh, by following the, the, the narrative here, uh, Jesus is doing this. Jesus is making these decisions. Jesus intentionally has them sail to the eastern side. Why? He has an appointment with a man. Does Jesus know what's going to happen over there? He does. He directs them to go over there. They don't know it, but he does. We're going over there because there's a man that I'm going to say. I'm going to show my mercy on this man, and not just any man but a tormented, you know, demon-possessed man. And so Jesus takes the initiative and has them go to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And now we are introduced to the demon-possessed man. Verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, there's you know, one of Mark's favorite words, right? Mark's very quick writing style. Immediately, immediately, immediately. And we get this sense even when we read, and there are, there are other accounts, one in Matthew and one in Luke, and we get the sense that as soon as Jesus' foot hit the shore, here comes this madman charging at him and his other disciples. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He is a madman. You might, we might ask you know, the question, well, is there any evidence that he's a madman? Well, you just have to read the, what happens, right? What follows. He's, he's a madman. Look at the evidence. He lived among the tombs. Now, if you look at the story in Luke, you find out that, you know, Luke says he was a man of the city. He was a man of the town who was now living in the tombs. In other words, where did this guy come from? He came from a city. He came from a town. And he's a regular guy. He's a guy who lived among people, worked among people, you know, traded among people. Just a guy. Man of the city. But something happened. We don't know what transpired in his life, whether he did something to encourage demon possession or if just the demons overtook him. We don't know. 
But here's a regular guy in the city who is now a man of the tombs. What are tombs? Where dead people are buried, right? Or not? Yeah, dead people are there. Bones, you know, decomposing bodies. It would have been filled with vermin like rats, filth. And he lived among the tombs. We, we find out from another uh, passage that these were like caves. Maybe in the rock face there, you know, they may have dug out caves. It might have been. Uh, there's evidence even in the, where the, the, uh, the ground sort of came down, the grassy area in a steep uh, angle there rushing out into the sea, and some of them dug caves into the grassy area. But there are dugout caves, and that's where the man lives. He lives among the tombs, among the dead bodies and bones. And you can just think about what that would be like. Once a man in the city, and here he is in this wretched place. Man of the tombs with an unclean spirit. Now, a couple of interesting things. One of these things is developed as we go along. But in um, Matthew, we're told there are two men. But Mark just talks about one of them. It doesn't mean there's a contradiction. You know, if there are two, then there are at least one, right? And Mark just focuses on the one. While the two are meeting Jesus, the two are speaking to him, but one of them seems to be the spokesman, the one who is speaking up. And so Mark just mentions this man. So if you're reading in the other, you know, the parallel gospels there, um, you'll, you'll find things like that. But those aren't contradictions. They're just things that Mark chooses to leave out. And he has an unclean spirit, as we discover he's full of demons, isn't he? It's an unclean spirit for several reasons. You know, as far as Judaism is concerned, the fact that there's a, a demon in him, that would make the man unclean. The fact that the man is living among the tombs makes him unclean. Because remember, in Judaism, you couldn't touch anything dead. And there's a specific passage where it says that you, you cannot even go among the tombs. So this man has an unclean spirit living in an unclean place. And furthermore, he's in Gentile territory, which even that makes him unclean. But he has an unclean spirit. And we know this isn't just he has you know, an unclean attitude, but he's full of demons. And so... This man lives among the tombs and has unclean spirits. Verse 3, uh, he lived among the tombs. He lived among them. He came out of the tombs and lived there. That's, that's where he lived. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, which suggests that at one time maybe they could, right? They couldn't anymore, but they tried. And at one time, maybe we're successful. But because the man was so powerful, chains, psh, break them right off. Whatever they used to tie him up, he could just snap them. Someone called this man Satan Samson. He could just do that. You couldn't bind the man. That's how strong he was. The power and the might that he had under the control of these unclean spirits, these demons. Now, none of this is normal, right? You, you would see somebody doing this, and you'd say, that guy's, you know, he's not right. He lives among the dead. You know, nobody can control him. He can just snap metal chains. He'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. And no one had the strength to subdue him. Subdue him. Tame him. 
control him. He's uncontrollable. I mean, we're getting a picture of this guy, right? Uncontrollable. No one can tame this man. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Night and day, all hours of the day, daytime and nighttime, this man is crying out. And the word crying out here is it means to scream, to howl. Some think he might have been like a, a howling animal, just screaming out. We learn from one of the other passages. It says that no one dared go that way. You know, here's a man who, like he did with Jesus, he comes out of the tombs just charging at him, screaming and howling, and, and day and night from the city. And, and, you know, they say that there near the shore of the Sea of Galilee, that, that noise would have traveled out across the sea over to the other side. Just night and day. Do you ever have a neighbor like that? <laughs> Do you ever know somebody just, please stop it. Please be quiet. You've all been in those situations. Well, that's what this man was doing, night and day. All hours of the day, all hours of the night, screaming and howling. And, you know, if I raise my voice for a little while, I get a sore throat, right? And you get raspy. Not this man. He has the power of the demons in him, and he can scream and howl all hours of night and day and charge after people that, you know, if you know when you give directions, sometimes you use markers, you know, land markers and people giving directions. They would say, no, when you get to the other side, Go left, don't go right up the hill. Don't go that way. No one dared pass by this man. So night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always screaming or howling out and cutting himself with stones. He's a cutter. Always cutting himself with stones. We don't know why was he, you know, demons just trying to mutilate his flesh. Was he something maybe the man was trying to purge the demons out of him by cutting his flesh open? Oh, we don't know. But it's kind of a grotesque picture that we're getting of this man. Another gospel tells us that he's naked. He doesn't wear, hasn't worn clothes for a long time. Dirty, filthy, naked, howling, screaming person who was always cutting himself. What does that mean? He's got a bunch of scars. Maybe some of them had been infected by living in the tombs. Maybe he's bleeding even as he comes yelling and screaming at people. He's a cutter. He mutilates his flesh. That's a pretty disgusting picture, isn't it? Verse 6, where we're led to the confession. We kind of see the man, and now we have a confession. When he saw Jesus from afar, he, he ran and fell down before him. As Jesus got out of the boat, this man had been howling and running toward Jesus. And when he gets there, he fell down before him. He fell to his knees and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? The demons know who he is. This is early on in the ministry of Jesus. Remember, some of his own disciples don't know who he is at this time. 
It's later that Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. And there are some who didn't fully believe in him until after the resurrection. But the demons know who he is. How do they know who he is? He created them. Didn't he? All things are created by him and for him. And there's nothing that is that wasn't created by him. They knew who he was. They had encounters with him. And so they make this confession. You're Jesus, the son of the most high God, which in biblical language is to confess that he is God. Jesus, we know you are God. Well, that's a pretty orthodox statement. That's more orthodox than many professing evangelicals today. Because the demons know who he is. And remember, the demons believe and tremble. They know who he is. He's God. But an orthodox confession is not enough, is it? Because even the demons can make an orthodox confession. What do you have to do with me? Which is a way of saying, what do we have to do with each other? What, what are you doing here? What, what have you come to do? We don't, we don't have anything to do with each other. And so, the spokesman for the demons what, says, I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. I adjure you which can have a couple of different meanings or a couple of shades of meaning here. But it generally means I beg you. I beg you. It also has a sense or can also uh, be expressed as a command. I beg you. I, I insist that you do not torment me. You know, kids sometimes when you discipline, they'll say, don't do that, don't do that. Well, they're commanding you, right? don't do it. Yet, it's a plea, isn't it? And so we've got this double sense here with this demon also. Don't do this, I adjure you, by God. A blasphemous thing to do. He is begging by the very name of God that Jesus would not do this. But that's this demon's confession. Verse 8 gives us some information, so a little bit more of a backstory here. For he was saying to him, who's he? Jesus. Jesus had been saying to him. This is, comes first. Jesus had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was saying this, said it more than once. Now, does Jesus have the authority and the power to cast out a demon? Just say, be gone, and he's gone? Yes. But here's a case where we get the idea that Jesus was in the process of commanding him. He is commanding, and the man is crying out. He commands, the man cries out. This is sort of what's going on here. Now, by the way, just as a side thought here, how long does this whole thing take? Probably minutes. Jesus steps out. Here comes the man. He falls down. He starts begging him. We have a little conversation up to this point. Very little time has gone by. For Jesus was saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So this would be the exorcism, if you don't mind that word. This is the exorcism. I command you to come out of the man. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. A legion was um, the numbered 6,000 fighting men of Rome. 
a legion of 6,000 fighting men of Rome, sort of the mighty of the mightiest. And this man says, my name is Legion. Why? For we are many. Now, does it have to be that this man, this demon was saying there's 6,000 of us? Maybe he's just using it, you know, there are many, many of us, there are thousands of us. But you could take it literally. There's no reason not to. There are 6,000 of us. Sort of the, the leanest and the meanest, the fighting men of Satan. We are his legion. Now that's a scary thought. Now this, is, this sermon is not on demonology. This is going to raise some questions. Well, how does this happen? Don't worry about those things, okay? It's not the point of the story. The point of the story is Jesus. So we're not going to get bogged down in trying to figure some of these things out. My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him. This is Legion, the man. I mean, the, the, the representative of the demons. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. They begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. In other words, they recognize that Jesus has the authority to, to just send them away, doesn't he? Now there's a question, why, why do they want to stay in this region? Right? Why do they not want to be sent out of the country? Well, commentators speculate that this legion of demons, this was their territory. You know, this is their sphere, their, their realm of activity. You know, this is where we operate. Don't send us out of the country. But whatever it was, they recognized that Jesus has the authority to do that. And so, verse 11, Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. Send us to the pigs. And we know that there are 2,000 pigs there. There are herdsmen, those men who are taking care of the 2,000 pigs. And there are the pigs, 2,000 of them. This again makes this whole area unclean for a Jew, doesn't it? 2,000 swine. There was a great herd of pigs feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So what did Jesus do? He gave them permission. You see, they couldn't do it on their own. They had to have permission. Satan and the demons are always operating under the permission of God. If they want to do this, they need permission to do it. Again, the authority and the power of Jesus, the creator and the sustainer of the universe, commands and controls even the demons. Again, this isn't on demonology. It raises some questions, but we can think about that some other time. So Jesus gave his permission for them to do that. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, ra raced down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Some sort of tongue-in-cheek call this swine suicide. Swinicide. The, these demons, perhaps 6,000 of them, went into 2,000 pigs and they raced down a steep bank and were all drowned in the sea. End of story, right? No, not the end of the story. We have the public reaction. We have the public reaction. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. They, they were going about everywhere. They went into the city, all over the area, wherever they could. And people came to see what it was that had happened. 
And they came to Jesus and saw the the demon-possessed man. The one who had had the legion. Sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. What did they see? They see a converted man. They see one who is transformed by the power of Christ. You remember the scene just before this of the the stormy sea? And Jesus just speaks a word and it's calm? Well, that kind of sets us up for this too. This tormented man, right? And all of a sudden, what's he doing? He's like, he's calm like the sea. He's calm, sitting there, just in his right mind. Remember the prodigal son who squandered his father's wealth, was eating among the pigs, and the scripture says, and when he came to his senses, when he came to his right mind, he said, I'll return to my father's house. Well, this man had come to his right mind. He was now clear-headed, right-minded. He was thinking clearly, just sitting there. Now, talk about a conversion. You know, for years this man had been howling and screaming and was naked, living in the tombs and cutting himself, you know, tormenting every passerby. There he is, just sitting there, calm, clear-headed. And those, it says, and they were afraid, Yeah, they were shocked. (laughs) They were full of fear of what they'd seen. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. So those that were there, the herdsmen, who went out and told this and brought the people back, they described everything that had transpired. They were the first-hand witnesses, weren't they? they? Their word was was um, trusted. They were there. They saw it all. And they were telling everyone what they had seen. Now we sort of move from the public response to the public outcry. Verse 17, they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. Now, isn't that so much like men? You would think what? They want Jesus to stay, right? Jesus, come and do this all over. No, they want Jesus out of there. Probably because he's a threat to their industry. He just killed 2,000 of our pigs. We don't need him around here. They want Jesus gone. And isn't that so much like what we see in the ministry of Jesus? He performed miracles. You know, he healed people. He raised people from the dead. Gave sight to the blind. And over and over, people wanted him gone. So in verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, Now we have this man's, he gives some personal instruction to the man. Personal instruction to the man. As he was getting into the boat, now really, it did take some time for the story to be spread abroad, right? The event just took a few minutes. So the man had been sitting there with Jesus the entire time. You you just presume, right? Jesus is talking to him. Jesus is instructing him. You know, the man has a lot of questions. Jesus is teaching him. Well, the the men go out and they get the crowd and they come back. But now, Jesus is ready to leave. Jesus is always in charge, isn't he? Even, Even in his confrontation with the demon, the demons, he's in control. 
So the man who was possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. What's he want to do? He wants to be with Jesus. I think that's a, a good picture of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Those who are converted, those who are saved by Jesus, want to be with him and his followers. This is natural. John says, you know, those that are begotten by God love those who are begotten. We love the brothers. We want to be with the brothers. That's what this man naturally wants to do. I want to be with you, Jesus. I want to be with those friends of yours, the disciples of yours. It's spiritually unnatural for a believer to say, I don't want to be with believers. Those things don't go, do they? And so we see this true conversion in this man. He wants to be with Jesus. Verse 19. He, Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, Go home. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This is another thing that Jesus wants from his followers. You know what? You can't, you can't just walk around with me. You can't be a part of this. You have your own field. You have your own mission field. You have your own ministry to perform. I want you to go back to your home. Go back to the town and tell them what I did for you. That I'm a powerful and merciful Savior. I find this a little convicting. What does Jesus want from us? What does he want from me? He wants us to tell, whether it's at home or in the city, what Jesus has done for me. He's powerful. He's God. And he changed me. He was merciful to me. He saved me. Why does Jesus want him to do that? So they might hear. It's not his job to make converts. His job is to tell of Jesus. And as I said earlier, some think that you know this guy is at least the first missionary to the Gentiles in Decapolis. He's the first one to go and preach the gospel to them. To tell them about Jesus. That's what sometimes Jesus said, Don't go and tell anybody. It wasn't time. They didn't want the word to spread too much. But here he says, No, go and tell everybody you know. Well, I find that a little, you know, convicting. Is that my heart, my spirit, to be sharing with everyone? what Jesus has done for me. Verse 20. So he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus has done for him, and everyone marveled. marveled. The word for Jesus there can also be translated Lord. You know, he told him to go and tell your friends how much the Lord has done, and what did he do? He went and told him about Jesus because Jesus is the Lord. Go and tell them how he saved you. So that's the story. That's the story of the wonderful, powerful, merciful Savior. And let me just then make a few observations, uh, some, uh, some brief applications before we close. We do, of course, first of all, see the power of our merciful Savior, don't we? The power of our merciful Savior. That's the main idea. That's the main theme here. We sang it earlier. Wonderful, merciful Savior who has the power to set us free from our sins because Jesus is merciful. It says... 
He has mercy on you. What is mercy? It's compassion and action. Some people say it's pity with feet. It's, it's one thing to have compassion and to feel bad and pity for a person. It's another thing to act on that. That is the mercy of God. To feel and to act on our behalf. And He has. He's merciful to us. And secondly, and I'm going to have to cover each one of these very quickly, but I think you'll, you'll get the main idea. It shows us the nature of the devil. The nature of the devil. James and Peter both say that Satan is like a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. Just seeking whom he may, anyone, whoever, to devour, to chew up, to rip in pieces. That's his nature. To destroy. To torment and ultimately to take as many as he can into the pit of hell. That's what he does. You know, there's there's no nice side of the devil. It's all evil. That's his nature. And it also teaches us that. Sin is always destructive. There's no good side to sin either. Sin always destroys. Go back to the Garden of Eden, right? What happened? Sin came into the world, the fall, and we all died in Adam, and all manner of evil came into the world because that's what sin does. Sin destroys. Sin destroys a life. It may not always be like this man, but sin destroys and is destructive. You know, young people, kids, learn this lesson early. Sin is destructive. It seeks to destroy. Why? Because the nature of Satan is evil. He wants no, nothing good for you. You can look around and think, well, you know, God's not right about this. I'm going to do this. God's not right about that. I'm going to do that. That's Satan. He's deceiving you. Wanting you to fall into sin to destroy you because sin always leads to death. There's no other outcome. Sin leads to death. And without Christ, you too will be thrown in the pit of hell. We also can think of this. This man is a picture of all of us. It's a picture of all of us. We are all bound fast in the chains of sin. We have no power to cast out these demons like this man had no power over them. We're helpless and hopeless and we cannot change ourselves. All of us are just this man. Just in a different way. Spiritually, right? Spiritually, we are this man. And we have no authority, no power to overcome the chains of sin that bind us. And finally, our strength must come from Christ. Only Christ can deliver us from Satan, from death, and from the power of sin over us. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's demonstrating that for us. He alone has the strength to deliver us from Satan, sin, and death. And we're fooling ourselves if we think we have the strength to do that. Because we don't, do we? Our strength is in Christ alone. And along that line, I would just, in conclusion, add that Jesus took the initiative all the way, didn't He? From the time that He said, let's get in the boat and go over there, 
He knows where he's going, doesn't he? And he knows he is the only hope for that man because that man cannot deliver himself. Only I can do that. Let's go over that and let me show you. Because we can't do it. From beginning to end, it is all, you know, the initiative is all of God. It's all mercy, isn't it? It's all mercy. So let us see Christ. Let us see Jesus, who is the powerful and compassionate with mercy Savior. If you're saved this morning, it is because of the power and the authority of Christ, because He is a wonderful, merciful Savior who takes mercy on poor, miserable, wretched sinners. That's us. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the powerful testimony of your word and the ministry of Christ. And these stories are recorded for our benefit to, to teach us something. And may we see the big picture of Christ who came, was given authority and power over everything, over life itself, over demons, over nature. We thank you for Christ, this powerful one who's full of mercy and who humbled himself to death, even death on a cross, that we might experience his mercy. We thank you and praise you for Christ. May we, like, like this demon-possessed man, may we fall on our knees before you and praise you and thank you for being our Savior. In your name we pray. Amen.